Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be reading chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Each Easter I always chuckle a little bit. Thank you, Uria. Uh, I remember a tweet that Russ Moore put out uh, probably about four years ago now uh, where he repeated Matthew 27:65. I'll read that verse to you. It says, uh, this is just after Jesus has died. Uh, he's in the tomb. And um, the, um, the Pharisees are concerned that There's a possibility that the disciples of Jesus might go and steal the body of Jesus and then claim that he's risen. So Pilate says to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. That is, go make the tomb as secure as you can. And Russ Moore tweeted, yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) I love that. Let's pray and then we will... uh, venture into the word. Father in heaven, if the resurrection is indeed true, it is nothing short of absolutely, totally astonishing. And we as believers not only believe that it is true, we have assurance that it is indeed true. And that because it is true, we ourselves and our physical bodies will one day as believers be raised to life eternal. We praise you for Resurrection Day. And Lord, now as we open your word to meditate and reflect upon it again, I pray that by your spirit you would come and do your work in our midst. Perhaps some of us need to be pushed redemptively. I pray that you would do that if that's your pleasure Perhaps some of us need assurance or an encouragement. Some of us may need a rebuke. Lord, whatever it is that you desire to do, we give you freedom to do that in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name and thank you for being our Lord and being with us. Amen. Whenever I take time to read the Bible's report of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm always struck by certain details in that report, details that serve to affirm the credibility and the reality of what's reported. For example, 
There is the little detail that a man named Joseph of Arimathea had stepped forward after Jesus died on the cross. Joseph had come forward and he had made his request to Pilate for the body of Jesus in order that Joseph could give Jesus a proper burial. And of course, as a devout Jew, Joseph of Arimathea wanted Jesus to receive a proper burial instead of letting the Romans do their customary thing, which was to let a deceased, crucified man remain on his cross and be pecked at and destroyed by birds. Now, why is this particular detail of Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus so significant as we talk this Easter morning about the resurrection of Jesus? It's significant because Joseph of Arimathea is described in Mark 15.43 as a respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And the Jewish Sanhedrin was a ruling body in Jerusalem made up of 70 well-regarded Jewish men. Together, the 70 men acted as a sort of Jewish Supreme Court. The point being that Joseph of Arimathea, who asked for the body of Jesus and buried the body of Jesus in his own personal tomb, this man was a well-known, well-regarded, actual man in Jerusalem, serving as he did on the Sanhedrin. The readers, the original readers of the Gospels, knew this man. He was not a made-up man that had been made up out of thin air by the writers of the Gospels. He was an actual historical figure and a well-respected one at that. And the Gospel writers would not have dared to attribute the action of burying Jesus in a tomb to this well-known person unless that person had actually carried out that action. So we have this actual, historically verifiable, rather famous person, Joseph of Arimathea, burying the crucified Jesus in a tomb. And this being the case, friends, there is little doubt that the location of the tomb would be well known by Jesus' disciples. The disciples would have known for a certainty the precise location where Joseph had placed the dead body of Jesus so that when they came on Easter Sunday and found the tomb empty, we can't make the argument that, well, they must have gone to the wrong tomb. The disciples went to the exact tomb where they knew Joseph had placed Jesus' body. They knew where the tomb was. It was the personal tomb that had been owned by the wealthy and the well-known Joseph of Arimathea. And it was that exact tomb, friends, that they found empty on Sunday morning. There are these little details in the report of Jesus' resurrection that make the report so very credible. Speaking of the empty tomb, and I forgot to advance our slides here because I don't normally do this, Oria, so my mistake. Speaking of the empty tomb, another detail 
or in this case we could say a lacking detail that should perhaps grab our attention, is that nowhere in the biblical record, or for that matter, nowhere in the literature that came after the biblical record, is there any report that the crucified corpse of Jesus was located following the reports of the resurrection. Of course, it was in the very best interests of both the Jewish leadership of the day and the Roman leadership to produce the corpse of Jesus after this rumor had started to spread that Jesus had been raised physically. But we have no record anywhere of either Jews or Romans producing the corpse of Jesus because, indeed, they couldn't produce his corpse because the once crucified Jesus Christ was alive. And another thing to notice that I think is pretty interesting. In the days before he'd been crucified, Jesus had once mentioned, in passing he'd mentioned, the Jewish custom of venerating tombs or the custom of reverencing the places where famous people had been laid to rest. In Matthew 23, verse 29... Jesus talked to the Pharisees about how the Pharisees, quote, built the tombs of the prophets and decorated the monuments of the righteous. So the veneration or the reverencing of burial tombs was a thing in Jesus' day, which leads us to another question, namely, as we read the biblical report of Jesus being buried in a tomb, and as we read the literature that came after the Bible, why is it that we have zero record, zero record, of the disciples venerating the tomb of Jesus after his death? As Alistair McGrath says, Jesus' tomb never became a place of pilgrimage, or even of interest to Christians. Why should this be? And the answer has to be that Jesus' tomb was of no interest to Christians because that tomb had ended up empty. As Alistair McGrath puts it, as Jesus was raised from the dead, there was no point in venerating his tomb. He wasn't there anymore. So little details like Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus, little details like the Jews and the Romans not having any success in producing a corpse, little details like the disciples not taking the time or care to venerate the tomb of Jesus, all these details kindle our confidence in the veracity and in the trustworthiness of the report of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, okay, all this is fine, I suppose, but coming back to the empty tomb for a moment, just because the tomb was empty does not automatically mean that Jesus was raised from death to life. It could have been, for example, that the dead body of Jesus was simply stolen away from the tomb by some zealous disciple, never to be found again. 
Or it could have been that Jesus survived the crucifixion and did not actually die, and even as, as he was laid in the tomb, presumed dead, he's bloodied, he's battered, even though that's the case, perhaps he later revived from being unconscious, and then, although very weak and severely injured, he got out of there. The empty tomb on its own merit, Dunbar, doesn't prove that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. Well, in order to respond to those sorts of of objections, I want to call on the Apostle Paul. I hope you have a Bible. I want to take us now to our Easter text for the morning, which is the text that Josh read, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8 where I think any doubts that may surround the meaning and the import of the empty tomb are dispensed with here. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, we have to understand, in about 54 or 55 A.D., which was approximately 25 years or so after the crucifixion. So get that. Paul is writing these words in 1 Corinthians 15 and in the book of letter of 1 Corinthians. He's writing these letters about 25 years after Jesus had been crucified. And watch what he says beginning at verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you, Corinthian believers, As of first importance, or as of primary importance, this is the primary thing. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul is writing 25 years or so after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but he says here, as he writes, that in a time gone by, Prior to the writing of this letter, he himself had received a body of Christian teaching that he had then passed on to the Corinthians. Now, it could be that Paul had received the body of teaching in question from Ananias and the disciples of Damascus back in the time when Paul had first met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Or perhaps Paul had received this body of Christian teaching when he first visited Jerusalem after his conversion. At the end of the day, I think we are to understand that Paul received this body of teaching or this Christian tradition, listen, within five years, give or take, of the death of Jesus Christ. So this was a very early version that he is about to give here, a very early version of Christian tradition that Paul had received. And now in this letter to the Corinthians, he mentions the fact that he had passed it on to the Corinthians after having received it himself. What was this body of teaching that Paul had received and had subsequently passed on to the Corinthians? Well, he outlines the teaching now in verse 3 and following. He says, first of all, that the teaching he had received and had passed on to the Corinthians was that Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the scriptures. The death of Jesus is the focus here. Jesus of Nazareth had died. He had expired. He had been physically deceased. Before Jesus wound up in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, Jesus had been actually, physically, 100% dead. And his death, says Paul here in verse 3, had been of a specific order. Or his death had about it a very precise nature. The death of Jesus, says Paul, had been an atoning death. The death of Jesus was a death for our sins or on behalf of our sins. Jesus had paid the penalty of death on behalf of his people who deserved that death for their sins. And this had all happened, says Paul, in accordance with the scriptures. That is, in accordance with the Old Testament revelation, which was the only written revelation available at the time. Paul continues in verse 4. This deceased Jesus, this one who had died, this atoning death, was buried. This is the teaching that Paul had received within five years or so of the crucifixion that he had passed on to the Corinthians. Jesus had been buried following his death. Yes, the expired corpse of Jesus Christ had been buried in the personal tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Burial is what you do with a deceased person. But then watch where Paul goes next here, because it's Easter Sunday after all, and our focus is on the resurrection of Jesus. So immediately after talking about the dead Jesus being buried, Paul goes on to say that Jesus was, listen, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He is risen. That's the fact that we celebrate this Easter morning. But then note well, and this is so important, Paul spends the next four verses listing the appearances that the risen Jesus made to certain individuals and to small groups of people and also to large groups of people. Paul says, Jesus appeared to Cephas, otherwise known as Peter, and Jesus appeared to the twelve, don't miss that word appeared, and Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, And Jesus appeared to James, and Jesus appeared to all the apostles, and last of all, says Paul, Jesus appeared to him, to Paul. The word that Paul uses in this passage, in the original Greek, that we translate into English as appeared, 
is a very common word in the Greek New Testament. It means simply to see. Paul is talking here about visually seeing in front of your nose Jesus the person who had been physically dead, but who was now physically risen from the dead. They all saw him with their physical eyes. Which immediately strikes out the theory that some have argued that the tomb was empty because the dead body of Jesus was simply stolen away. No, the fact that all these people saw Jesus, saw him animated and alive and moving around post-mortem, after he had died, this means that we aren't dealing with a stolen or hidden corpse. This was Jesus whom they saw. Okay, yeah. But what about the other possibility? The possibility that a bloodied and battered and severely wounded Jesus just revived in the tomb after a little period of unconsciousness, so that he was never actually dead. He simply revived from his injured state and then escaped the tomb. What about that possibility? My answer would be, let's go to the New Testament and let's consider seriously just what all these people saw when they beheld with their eyes the Jesus who had come out of the tomb. The question is, was this just a revived Jesus who had never actually died? Was this just a case of Jesus continuing the same quality of life that he'd been living prior to the crucifixion? Or is there something else going on here, something else going on post-tomb post-crucifixion? Is there something else happening here? What did the witnesses see? What was it exactly that gave these people, listen, that gave them Easter faith that would drive them, in many cases, to go to the stake for their convictions? Well, for starters, the witnesses of the post-tomb Jesus did see a physical, material Jesus. He was physical. This was a Jesus, according to Luke 24, 39, who invited his disciples to see him and touch him. This was a Jesus whose physical feet, in Matthew 28, 9, were clasped by the women who had come to the tomb. This resurrected Jesus also said to his disciples, I'm no mere spirit now. You can see that I have flesh and bones. The Jesus who had appeared after the tomb was physical and material. He invited Thomas, didn't he, to touch his side for the purposes of kindling belief in Thomas. Jesus was and is 
physical in his resurrected body. But having established that fact that the resurrected Jesus was physical, we have to hasten to add that we must not think of the resurrection as merely the resuscitation of a corpse. Like what had happened to Lazarus. No, the resurrection of Jesus was so much more astonishing than that. Listen. It was the transformation of the physical body of Jesus, not just the resuscitation of the physical body of Jesus. What did the witnesses of the post-tomb Jesus see? They saw a physical Jesus. Yes, they did. But Jesus was now shockingly transformed. Sometimes people recognize him immediately, but other times there's a long gap before they recognize him. Something is going on. Jesus now lived in a reality, says John Leith, that is unknown to us. The resurrected Christ was indeed physical, but he was profoundly transformed. For example, the resurrected Jesus is nowhere described as walking away from people after he's done talking with them, but rather he's described as suddenly vanishing from the sight of people. Luke 24:31. This may suggest a reality unknown to us. In another place, Jesus just appears without warning in a room whose doors had been locked. John 20, verse 26. We ask, could a merely revived Jesus who had secretly escaped the tomb, a Jesus who was now carrying on the earthly life he'd lived prior to the crucifixion, could he vanish and appear out of nowhere like this? No. The text of Scripture does suggest that the post-tomb Jesus was of a different order. Something was going on. Something massive was going on. His appearances now were seemingly not subject to our science. And we don't like that. Consider his wounds. His wounds, sustained on the cross, still appeared on his post-tomb body. Yes, they did. But what would have been, I think, remarkable to the witnesses of the resurrection is that now those wounds, listen, were neither festering nor were they healing. The wounds just were. In a way unlike any wounds that you and I have ever seen, the wounds were now cut off somehow from the regular and expected dictates of biology and chemistry. As if, friends, as if Jesus was now not subject to the rules of the old world in which he had been crucified. What did the witnesses see as they beheld 
the, the risen Jesus Christ. What they saw, says Robert Jensen, was nothing less than an inhabitant of the age to come. An inhabitant of the age to come. What they saw in the risen Jesus, again, the resurrected Jesus is not just a man who had begun to live again after having died, but rather a man who was freed not only from death, but even from the possibility of dying. Now, one of the amazing things that Paul says in our 1 Corinthians 15 passage in verse 6, and it is amazing, he says that the risen Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Get this. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, some of whom were doubting the resurrection. He's writing, as we said, in about 54 A.D., and he says here that as of the writing of this letter, most of the 500 witnesses of the risen Jesus who saw him on one particular occasion are still alive. You Corinthians who are doubting the resurrection, I invite you to get on Facebook and look these people up Most of them are still alive. Go question them. I don't think they had an ancient Near Eastern version of Facebook. Go find these people. Look them up. Question them if if you want to do that. They will tell you their version of events. They will confirm what I'm telling you, that Jesus is risen from the dead. Paul would not risk such a statement and such an invitation for these people to just simply go check out the claim of the resurrection. He wouldn't do this unless Paul was utterly convinced of the resurrection himself. And sure he was. He'd seen the risen Christ. We also notice in verse 7 that Paul mentions James. The risen Jesus had appeared to several people. One of the people that he appeared to was his own sibling, his own brother, James. Now, what's interesting here is that we have evidence in the gospel accounts that during Jesus' lifetime, James, his brother, did not think that Jesus was anything special. John 7, verse 5 says that not even the brothers of Jesus believed in Jesus. Presumably, that included Jesus' brother, James, not believing in Jesus. But then later on, as the New Testament progresses, what happens? Suddenly, in the book of Acts, we find James sharing intimately in the fellowship of Christian believers. In fact, James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And over in Galatians 1, Paul even calls James an apostle. So clearly, friends, something, something 
major had happened to James. Something had shifted James's paradigm, paradigm altogether so that he was brought to this place where he put his faith in his sibling, Jesus. Now, I want to tell you that I have a brother. I just have one brother. And although I love my brother very dearly, it would take, quite literally, it would take the most, emphasis on the the, the most gigantic, enormous miracle for me to ever consider confessing my brother as Lord. It just would never happen. But yet this is what happened to James. Which begs the question, what happened? What would make James take this staggering step confessing his own sibling as Lord? And the answer is the resurrection. The appearance to James of his sibling Jesus now transformed, alive, glorious, following his death on the cross. And as for Paul himself, he says in verse 8 that the risen Christ also appeared to him, to Paul. And of course we have the record of that appearance, that experience in Acts chapter 9 where the risen Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. The result of the risen Christ's appearance to Paul was nothing less than a radical transformation in Paul. Paul went from detesting Christians, seeking to kill Christians, he went from that to pouring his own life out in Christian mission, despite the many brutal obstacles that he would face. Friends, an encounter with the living Jesus will turn your world upside down. Well, I wish I had time this morning to take you through the rest of of 1 Corinthians 15. I invite you later today to read the rest of this chapter out loud to somebody. Do that. Maybe perhaps at your Easter Sunday dinner that will happen later. Paul goes on in this chapter to put a whole lot of eggs in the resurrection basket, so to speak. He goes on to make the rather stunning statement that if Christ did not literally rise from the dead, then the whole Christian faith is a big, giant sham. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, says Paul, then Christian preaching is useless and Christian testimony is fit for the pit. And if Jesus is not literally risen from the dead, then no sins are forgiven, he says. And further, if the resurrection did not happen, then those who died believing died with a vain hope. That's how monumentally important the resurrection is for Paul and for God who inspired Paul to write. Without the resurrection, friends, the whole faith can be tossed in the garbage. Friends, by the resurrection of Jesus, all the claims that Jesus made during his lifetime were proven true. 
In the resurrection of Jesus, God declared that Jesus himself is vindicated and exalted. In the resurrection of Jesus, death is shown to be defeated. Hallelujah. As believers in Jesus, we need not any longer fear our dying. I want to say that again because we ought to be shouting as believers in Jesus, we no longer need to fear our dying. In fact, in verse 55 of the great resurrection chapter that we've looked at some today, Paul will go ahead and he will taunt death. He will trash talk it. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has taken the dreadful power of death that had reigned since Adam. He has taken that dreadful power by the throat and he has destroyed it. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus are given the sure promise, listen, that one day our own bodies will be raised in the same indestructible life as the risen Jesus Christ. Can you imagine it? Just imagine it. No more aging. No more sickness. No more fillings in my mouth and glasses on my face. No more death. No more pain. No more disability. As those of us who have staked our lives on Jesus, we will live forever in transformed bodies, physical bodies, that God will adapt for their habitation in eternity. Now, when I was converted to Jesus at the age of 20, my own road to Damascus experience in February of 1990, I was sitting under the preaching of the gospel. I was listening to the word preached, and God was drawing me to himself. Maybe you're a person here this morning who has been listening, and you have experienced a yearning a longing back there somewhere to know the resurrected Jesus whom we have been speaking about. If that's you, I want to say to you that more than likely that yearning is God himself drawing you to himself. You need to pay attention to it. And I want to encourage you with all my heart this morning to receive the risen Jesus Christ to flee to the arms of the risen Jesus Christ, to come to the end of yourself and stake your life on the risen Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, to see and to know and to believe that Jesus is the only one, listen to me, he is the only one who can save you from your sin. He is the only one who can save you from the terrifying wrath of God that is coming on human sin. He's taken the wrath for you on his cross. You need to receive him and look to him and believe. I implore you to accept his death on the cross as the only thing that will atone for your sin against God. That you would be forgiven by your maker this morning and accepted into his family. Will you look this morning to the crucified, 
and risen, Jesus Christ. I want to make myself available to you after service if you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to me further about new life in Jesus. For now, I want to pray as we get set to hear our last song this morning. Would you bow your head with me? Lord God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would so draw and convict somebody here today who doesn't know you, that they would reach out to you, grab onto you in faith, and know you, come to know you, that they would have eternal life. This is my prayer. I pray that you do that work, Spirit. Thank you for new life in Jesus. Thank you that the old is gone and the new has come. Thank you that we will be raised one day when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We will have indestructible bodies like his. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your faithfulness to your wayward creatures and your covenant. All these things in thanksgiving we pray. Amen.